Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Activation Project, where we activate your mind, activate your tribe, and activate the world. I'm here with my new co-host, Paloma Cifuentes. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Super excited to get the show started today. Got a lot to talk about. Yes. So we have some very interesting guests on here today. So just to continue our theme of season two, where we're discussing generational trauma, epigenetics, and how it gets passed on inadvertently from one generation to the next. Also about uncovering shame and how we can rewrite our future by letting a lot of this stuff go and talking about it and acknowledgement. So my guest today is Heather Harton. She was actually a member of the family and the children of God as well. We'll go into the story and how we are related to each other. We also have her mom coming on today to tell her story. I've been really excited about this because we've had quite a few of the second generation members of the family come on and give their side of the story. And I've just been really curious to hear, aside from one of the adults, the, the first generation and sort of the thinking behind what led them to joining and all of that stuff. So some really interesting stuff here. It's also going to be really cool to see how there's parallels in both of their lives. We have Heather's mom calling in, so the audio might not be the best, but bear with us. We will try to get that squared away. We have a really awesome sound engineer. His name is Brian Thompson. Shout out to Ryan. Thank you so much for the awesome work that you do. So with no further ado, we'll get started. Heather. Hello. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where you were born, a little bit of a backstory, and then what led you to the Activation Project? Yes. So I was born in China. In 1985, my parents were in the family, missionaries there. My first memories are of Japan. I was only in China for six months when they moved to Japan. So first memories all there and have a very different dynamic with my parents. So have a different dad than the rest of my siblings. And so I am part Korean and then American Indian and Swedish, Irish, all the rest. And I'm the second oldest of seven. Well, I guess technically nine, but seven. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But childhood growing up in the family was very interesting. I had a very kind of rough start. I was sick a lot. I had asthma growing up as a kid, all the way from pretty much from the time I can remember to the time I was 14. And that was something that I struggled with for a very long time. And it created a very different dynamic with my relationship with my siblings and my parents. And the way I was treated was always different, which caused some separation, I guess, between the rest of my siblings and the dynamic they had with my parents as well. So could we talk a little bit about the term Jesus baby? I know that we talked about this in a previous podcast with Serena, who actually was raised with the leader, David Bramberg, of the family. Just to go over that again, I know Paloma was curious about it as well. So there was this term in the group called Jesus Baby from a specific time in the group when we had this practice called flirty fishing. So Heather's mom will go into detail about what the actual practice was, and she was very involved with that. So yes, it was family's way of, or one of their ways that they would not only fundraise, but also recruit and express. I think it was explained to them or presented to them and the women that who were talking about 
that we're doing this practice is the physical form of showing God's love to men. And they targeted mainly wealthy men so they could fundraise. And that's how they supported, you know, the homes that they were living in, the communal living that was happening. And it was a highly glorified practice for a while. I think it stopped in Whenever like AIDS came, yeah. like when all the STD. The late 80s, I think they stopped that practice and they were getting a lot of persecution from it as well. So they were but essentially hookers for Jesus. Hookers for Jesus. That was, I think that was a whole a letter. And so that is where I came from. So I was a Jesus baby. My biological dad was a very, from what I've been told, very successful businessman in Hong Kong. And he actually, like, what my situation is, he actually knew about me. At the time, I think my parents were, one of the times they were separated as well, while this was all going on. And he really, like, cared for my mom, like, wanted to be with her. And, you know, so they had that conversation to where he knew about me. But Randy, they just agreed, I guess, I think they all met and had a conversation and they just agreed. Randy is your dad. Randy is not your biological father, but your dad. Yes. And they agreed that he would be the one raising me. And at this point, your mom already had two children before you? One. One okay. older sister. Yes. Can you go into a little bit of the dynamic of what it was like being from a different dad? They never, I know that they didn't tell you until you were much older. Yes. So they never acknowledged, said the words out loud, you have a different dad until I was 25. I was already married with kids, you know, living as an adult, kind of, it was always because I look the way I look is very blatantly different than the rest of my siblings. It's not like it was always a question growing up. People would be like, you know, where do you fit in or what are you or whose kid are you? And then my dad's reaction to that was always very defensive. And so he made a point to always say, no, you are mine. You are no different, you know, and it was always felt forced and overcompensated Mm. because of it, because it was for me, once it was said out loud, I'm like, that's such a simple explanation. And then people drop it. They're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like you have a different biological dad, which it's not that I mean, in the dynamic of the world we live in, it's everywhere. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a Jesus baby or that situation, but people with blended families or, you know, it's everywhere. And for me, it was so, it's like, finally, it's just tell the truth, you know, but it was so hidden and so really lied about for so long. And I mean, we would joke about it as kids because it was the thing is like, I look so different and we didn't know why we didn't question, you know, the why of it or, you know, and I, I would always think like, you know, kind of like, okay, I know I'm getting treated differently. So there was preferential not, treatment. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And how did that like affect the relationship with your siblings? I always felt guilty about it because to me it was so blatant and I didn't ask for it or understand it. So it was confusing. How like, is it what, different in what ways? That I got treated better. I was never in trouble. And my dad, he recently told me that he's like, we just had a moment one day when you were like four years old and you just looked at me. He said when they found out that my mom was pregnant too, like he knew that he had to be a better dad to me than he thought my biological father would have been, you know? So I think on that dynamic and with that 
I think maybe he took it more seriously or something, but it was very different. And I was very shy, very quiet as a kid, partially because of the asthma and just like the mm-hmm. breath work that it takes to talk. I didn't do a lot of talking. I was super, super quiet. But he said, he's like, you just looked at me and I knew that I couldn't really punish you. And it was just going to be had this understanding. And we always kind of had this understanding of I'm the communicator with him of all the siblings. Like if, you know, we were trying to, you know, we wanted to go do something or, you know, oh, Heather, go ask because he didn't say no. You know, I could get him to agree to what we wanted. And of course, manipulation is best when you're little. That must have been really tough but, on both sides, you know, watching like your siblings take the brunt of like yeah. the discipline, the spankings. And, and so strict too. And I kind of you know, saw that dynamic of like, okay, if, you know, don't do that because you'll be in trouble. Don't do that. You'll be in trouble. You know, so I kind of like, don't do anything. But you did mention that you were sick for the beginning part of your life, the early parts of your life. Did you feel at that point that you got special preference because you were sick? Yes, I definitely received more one-on-one care from both my parents because it was such a big issue. And is it possible that your siblings were able to see that and then oh, for sure. not yeah. necessarily yeah, for hold sure. it against you that you were getting a lot of special treatment? Yeah. And not understanding why, because they didn't explain things, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't explain, you know, or give the situation. It was just, that's the way it was. Yeah, this what is what's happening. At what point did, did that go, the special treatment, did it go from like, you being sick to you just being like maybe different, like maybe not having the same father? Not until, I mean, it was the way we grew up. It was all the way through until they said it out loud, really. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. still, I mean, I'm kind of the hub of my placement and my role in the care that I received. I've been able to be the caretaker for my siblings in a lot of ways and give that emotional care that I got because I did get attention and love in a way that wasn't shown. And that comes with a whole, like, a lot of guilt, too. A lot of it's unconscious guilt because you're like, you know, you see your other siblings going through this and you're not getting it. And it's just like, why is this happening? And that's something that also causes trauma that I've seen in family, like, Families, if they adopt a kid or, yeah, there's a kid from a different parent. So that dynamic is different. And then the relationship changes with the parents to the other siblings. And that can cause just, I mean, it can cause resentments, you know, even though you don't want to have the resentments because you love your siblings. But it's like this total confusion as to why you're getting treated a certain way. And it's hard, I'm sure, to see somebody like your dad be a certain way with you and then a completely different way with the other kids so it's like pretty rough yeah and it was something that like I felt like I don't want this attention on me I'm not asking for this like if I could have I would have always preferred to not have it because it was so uncomfortable and it made that dynamic just really weird and it was very blatant too and as we got older we kind of found a way to use it to our benefit and you know it was kind of one thing that I had that I could use and to advocate for your for your brothers and sisters for my siblings and you know to make their lives easier I'm like okay well if I get him to do this or you know talk him off the ledge of you know his anger or whatever because I could reason with him and we did have that communication you know maybe it won't be so bad for them Mm -hmm. 
So her parents were big leaders in the group. So they traveled to different countries, but they were always in like this place of authority. They were called shepherds. So they sort of dictated what went on in the homes and a lot of people, you know, looked up to them. And so it was also really important for their kids to be a certain way. Like they had to be the star children, the example to all the other kids of what good, true missionary children look like. So there was a lot of pressure on that front to behave a certain way. So not only, you know, like, do they have this like very militant style of father, but then they had to present this like image of perfection to the other. Because we were a direct reflection of dad and what they represented or wanted the world and other people to see. So yeah, we had to be perfect from our clothes to the way we spoke, manners. And in some ways, like it's good things that you want to teach your kids. You want to teach your kids to communicate clearly, to look people in the eye, to be bold, to, you know, be able to communicate and be, you know, a good sample. But it was to the point where it was, there was no room for failure either. And it was so unbalanced. You know, my... (laughs) for Walt's first memory of me is when we first came to Dallas and it was a big home too. So there was like lots of kids. It was dinner time. Everybody like, I guess they hyped up their arrival a lot because it was like the home was in, as they would say, tip top shape. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these leaders are coming in with their perfect kids and it was like a thing, you know, so we come in and sit down to dinner and we sit at kids table and my dad's walking around the table like military general inspecting how people are eating and it's like (laughs) that's not how we eat heathers show them how to eat you know spaghetti and so you know the little soldier I you know twirling on my spoon and no smacking no you know it's just perfect posture and that is how we lived like that was the image we had to do all day, every day. And that's in itself exhausting. And how did that end up affecting you later on in life? This like, oh, I carried that. Failure is not an option. I don't know. I go back and forth between like, I like nice things too. And I, once I figured out how to make money and I was like, oh, it's all it takes. Okay, we got this, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I like nice things. I like to be in beautiful places. We always lived in really nice houses, really nice places. And, but there was such a, oxymoron dynamic with that because the inner workings of our home was just chaos. And then Brene Brown talks about how perfectionism, you know, and I think she was relating this more to men, but obviously it's so common with women as well, but how perfectionism is rooted in shame because it's that shame of needing to be a certain way to prove yourself worthy of love. And when you're raised with a parent who has such conditional love, it's such obvious conditional love for his children, like you have to be a certain way to receive this for me, my approval, my reward. It's like this reward system, you know, like only if you're perfect, only in this way can, you know, you be worthy of my love for you. And that internalizes so much for so long because then to yourself, you create those conditions as well, which is something important to think about is like, which conditions have I placed on myself to make myself worthy of my love? You know, like I'll love myself as long as I stay a certain weight. 
mm-hmm. or as long as I behave in a certain way or I do this and I do that. If I don't do that, then, you know, I'm a piece of shit or whatever it is, yeah. you know, whatever your inner dialogue is. But it's important to understand that, like, understand what kind of parenting that you received. Was it conditional? Was it overtly conditional? Yeah. And how am I putting those conditions on myself? Yeah, it was very much that. I carried a lot of that, not only through being a teenager, because of the dynamic of, okay, we were supposed to be these perfect kids, but then the things like learning how to read, knowing how to write, like the basic part of education got skipped. Mm -hmm. So I taught myself to read and write when I was nine years old. And I always felt like a fraud because I'm like, okay, you were so high functioning with these other things, but the basics of what, you know, you're supposed to know, what helps you get through practical life of, you know, getting a job, reading street signs, driving, like just independence Mm -hmm. was completely looked over. And then you were just supposed to know, like, well, why don't you know that? I'm like, well, nobody taught me that. And then it was denial. Like they just like that didn't happen. Okay. So if you would, Heather, can you tell us a little bit about the transitional dilemma that led you to the activation project? So Heather has done two of our journeys following the MAPS protocol, psychedelic assisted therapy. And I would love to hear about, you know, what led you to getting started with that and how your life has sort of changed since then, what the experience was like for you. Life changing in the best way. Okay, so leading up to it, I was in a place in my life where I, for the first time, didn't have a plan. I was stuck. I could not force things anymore. I was stuck in a really bad relationship. I was stuck financially. I was stuck career-wise, just nothing moving forward. Like no part of my life is moving forward. And up to that point, I had been forcing myself to fix things, make things happen, make it better, fear of failure. One more thing I'm not going to fail at, but in that forcing made it so much worse. And really thanks to COVID kind of shut everything down, which shut my plans down, which would have probably led to that process being continued because I still wasn't dealing with the things that I needed to deal with and just like, okay, I'll just add this to it. I'll just add, you know, one more to-do list to it and maybe that'll fix it. So I had to sit with and really be uncomfortable. And it was in that almost six months of being really uncomfortable with myself, with my situation. And would you say that there was like elements of dysfunction happening in your life? Oh, yes. There Can you talk a little ev- bit about that? Ev- pretty much everything was dysfunctional. I So I had gotten divorced five years ago. And then I started dating this guy that seemed really different than my ex-husband. He was exciting. He was, you know, had that entrepreneurial fire and vision for, you know, changing things, doing something different. We connected on a level that was, you know, have fun, but then it turned, you know, slowly turned into things and then got involved financially together. And then things went south with that. And so it was a constant main, like the rest of our relationship was a constant maintaining this, you know, really crazy dynamic of, I have to make you do these things because you're, you know, pretty much lied about everything. 
And then his relationship with my daughters, he kind of filled a role that they had been missing with their dad not being involved. And he stepped up in that way and provided, you know, that stability when they needed it. And there was that part of it was really good, you know. And so it was a struggle of can I let this other stuff go because they're finally in a good place. But he was, you know, not faithful, not really negative, had substance abuse problems, you know, alcohol problems, and then a slew of unhealed issues as well that would come out, you know, and I would have to deal with. And then with my siblings and I had, you know, my brothers in and out of my house. That dynamic was, has always been kind of crazy. And my house was just a hub, you know, which I liked because it was like, it's my way for caring for them, you know? And it's really, I felt like it's always all they had. And if that's what I can offer, it's always available. You know, if that's how I can show them love and care and they feel like they're important, I'm always here for that. But it does create problems of its own because then, and I have no boundaries. Like that was one of the biggest things is I had no boundaries with anyone, not with myself. I didn't even know what the word was. Like, <laughs> like well, you can tell people no. You know, so it's like, yes, 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 to all this stuff and micromanaging or trying to, but always feeling like you're failing at everything because mm-hmm. you can't. Although, and that was a rule that you had always played. Yeah. yeah. And so it was just a continuation of that. And because there's so many of us, it's, you know, it's like, oh, there's something always going on, you know, and then dealing with my kids and, you know, I have a teenager and going through those things with her and some of the issues that, you know, unresolved things from getting divorced and then her seeing me in a place to where there was always a lot of judgment on my just me being myself. And because I'm a mom, oh, I shouldn't be doing, you know, I surf and I, you know, wear tiny bikinis because I'm a tiny person. But it was always judgment for that. It was like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You're a mom. You shouldn't look like that because you're a mom. I'm like, hmm. Mm. It's not for attention. Anybody who, you know, on the beach who knows me, it's like, I love to surf. It's something that we started doing when I was 14 and we got good at it. And I've always loved it. It was a safe place. It was activity. It was, you know, it was really something I, it was the first sport that I could do that I felt strong Mm -hmm. and I had to fight for that. And it was such a milestone every session, you know, paddling out, being able to get out the outside, catch the big waves, you know, be that person and do something like everybody else is doing. It was huge for me. And my love of the water and connecting with nature, like it's just all those things embodied. So, and I still to this day, it's, you know, my favorite thing to do with my siblings is surf because it was so healing for us in so many different ways. But when I became a mom, when I got married, it was an issue with my husband or ex-husband. It was an issue in my new relationship. And there was also a repetition of that shame pattern, right? Yeah. Not shame when you're growing up, like you need to be a certain way Mm -hmm. to receive love. And shame is a very powerful tool. It's a very powerful tool for manipulation because if your love is contingent on it, you know, what would you rather have? Right. Right. You'd rather receive the love if that means giving up these things, you know? So there was a lot of that and, you know, dysfunctional 
relationships, trauma bonding, and, you know, these men that I was choosing and not really, I guess, because I didn't really have intention going into relationship. It was just like, oh, this happened kind of thing. I met this person and then I can make it work, mm-hmm. you know, instead of. And there's something that reminds me of my dad yeah, that I'm that. attracted like, to for some this? reason. And that was like when I <laughs> figured that out with <laughs> my last relationship and last yeah. boyfriend, uh, I was uh, like, oh, I know why this is so familiar. And I know why I don't uh, deal with it well is because he's just like my dad. And I've seen this over and over. And because I know how to deal with it and handle it, and I've been dealing with it and handling it, I'm like, okay, I can fix this. I know how to do this. It makes it that much harder to leave. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I finally got to a point where, no, I can't do this. I don't want this life. I don't want these feelings constantly. And I never experienced such unsettled feelings in a relationship before to where like constant anxiety, constant walking on eggshells, which is how we grew up. And it was those feelings being brought back that I was just like, I can't do this. And so that led her to come do the work with me, which involves taking our medium of psychedelic, which for Heather was (laughs) extremely out of character to do any sort of substance. She barely ever drinks one glass of wine here and there. So you know that she was looking for a solution and needing an alternative. Well, and control had been, control had been my substance. So the way I handled things was like, if I can control everything, if I can be the best at everything, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's job, you know, be the best mom I can be, you know, provide as many A plus options as possible, you know, so let it go and being like, okay, I need to get out of my head because this isn't working. I'm like, I've tried this for 30 something years. It's not working slowly becoming more unmanageable the longer it goes on. So I knew that, yes, I had to really think outside the box. And I knew that, and I've, you know, done therapy before you sit across from someone, you start talking about your story and they're just like, we don't know. Like, what do you say to that? Um, like shock, horror, the whole thing, like they, they can't digest it. And so it's I trauma for the therapist just by listening to it. They're like, like, <laughs> And you don't do drugs and you're not an alcoholic. Like, what the hell? You know, but I'm like, I can't fix this in me. You know, I'm too close to it. You know, and I knew that it would have to be a safe space, which this definitely provides. And the way Liv does this is amazing. And our connection, I knew that I could actually let go enough to explore all the things that I had shut away for so long. It's just so powerful to lay out your whole story, the whole timeline from what you can remember and you talk about it, you know, and your hippocampus is lighted up. So you remember all of these things. And then by laying it all out like that in front of you, you're able to connect the dots and see these patterns because recognition of patterns is just so powerful in helping you to gain awareness and understanding and like, okay, well, now I know what to look out for. Now I can understand these signs, but also understanding how epigenetics works, which is the trauma that gets passed down 
you know, through the generations of stuff. So then you can understand. And that's why we have your mom here, Sharon, to talk a little bit about her story. And Sharon, we'd love to hear a little bit about your childhood and stuff like that. But really quick. So then we did the journeys and what did that lead to? We did the first journey. And after, and I already knew that my life needed to change, like every aspect of it to ending, you know, I already made up my mind to end up in my relationship, but it was like working out the logistics of that. I didn't, I had no idea how it was going to happen. And after I did the journey, so I did the journey in August and I just knew I was done with Corpus. I knew I couldn't grow there anymore. Like I had hit the ceiling with it and nothing was moving forward for me, you know, thinking like, okay, what are my options? I do need to move. And I've always loved California. Always, we've been going there since we're 14 surfing contest. And it's just a feeling that I've always loved being there. So in September, I went for a week just to see if like, okay, is this viable? Can I do this? Is this somewhere I really want to be? And I spent a week there. My first solo traveling trip ever, which I had some major, major anxiety about that we walked through, let go of, which now I think back on that. (laughs) Like so much of it. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> so funny. I went and I just knew I'm like, yeah, this is home. Like this is where I need to be. It spoke to me on so many levels. So yeah, I was like, I talked to my girls about it and they were on board. They were kind of at a place where they knew things were changing. And you know, and I've always kind of talked to them to give them an option. You know, it's like this is the things that need to change you know, these are options, you know, what do you girls think? And they were excited about it. And so came home, pretty much sold everything in my town home and drove out in October. And of course, it being the height of COVID at the time, it made things a lot of challenges that really didn't time-wise plan for. So it took a little longer to get settled, to get a job. But the way everything, now I have an amazing job that it was definitely a God thing. And I knew I would have to find something that wasn't just a regular, you know, nine to five, you know, with kids being virtual school, I needed to be available. You know, I'm the only parent present, had to have people and work support that supported that kind of life. And they understood that. And I definitely have that with this job. And it's been the most amazing thing. And then to finding the spot that I'm in, it took a while, but it was finally the right thing. And when it happened, it was just like the most amazing, like I live in the most amazing place ever. And my landlady is, I love her. She's amazing. And all these things that I needed, kind of that divine intervention without my doing, like all of these things happened without me forcing. It's happened and it was just like, this is right. This is where you're supposed to be. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it's come with its set of challenges, which always happens when you make that commitment to yourself to make a change, to do the difficult thing, to choose the unbeaten path and step out of your comfort zone. 
as usually happens, like can happen when you make a commitment to work out. And so you're like, yes, feeling super good going five days a week. And then you get struck with COVID or the flu or whatever. And you're like, uh, I can't. So preparing for those hurdles beforehand yes. is really important. You're like, I'm about to embark on this. And we talked about that too. Like you might be faced with some opposition. So be ready for it. Because when you're you're sort of ready, then that kind of offsets the catastrophe of like, oh right. my God, you know, because yeah. you're like, oh, not I knew this was coming. Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to have the fuck it mentality. Like, right. I'm going to. And you so, know that it's part of it. And right. it's supposed it's to part happen. of it. Yeah. And to strengthen yeah. your resolve, right? Mm-hmm. And your commitment to making that change. And there were so many things, I mean, that happened. Like, I got scammed at an Airbnb. My job search, it was all over the place. I would have something really good. And then they'd be like, oh, well, we're, you know, putting that on pause because of COVID. I'm like, okay. And then my kids, you know, the, that's been the biggest challenge is during that first two months that we were there, you know, I guess they had a very different view of what it would be like, you know, kids don't really think of like, okay, the logistics of moving across the country, not only financially, but just what that requires to start your life over from scratch you know, and it took longer. And I have amazing friends that we stayed with and provided, you know, a safe place and company. And that was amazing. But it was also during the height of COVID. So we couldn't really go anywhere. So it's like, we're somewhat cooped up. And so there it was like, okay, you know, and my daughter even said, she's like, mom, you know, like this is so much harder than it should be. You know, maybe you should just, you know, give it up and go back home, you know, and having that. And I just, I was, you know, explained to them, I was like, this is testing resilience and resolve to the decision that I've made, which I know in the long run is going to better all of us, mm-hmm. you know, the opportunities and not only the lifestyle change, but the creating new healthy habits in an environment that is so amazing, you know, and I'm not political at all. So like all that stuff, I'm just like, mm, I pay attention to what I need to, but it's not, I'm not going to get weighed down with it. And then all the well, negative I get so much pressure from your kids that are looking up at you like, right. are you going to make it through this with us? Yeah, like, <laughs> like having, and I have amazing, resilient children and they've gone through things that, you know, I'm like, I wish I could have spared them from so much. But in that, they have always shown such faith in me. And that's a very sobering thing to, you know, it's like, you never want to feel like you're failing your kids, you know, even if they don't understand. And with my oldest daughter, there's a lot of healing that needs to be done for things that just, it will take time, you know, and her maturing as a person, you know, going into, you know, having some life experiences to be able to look at these situations and being like, oh, okay, I can understand that now. I didn't understand it then. And then, you know, them having a very negative, you know, everybody on my ex-husband's side and unfortunately my ex-boyfriend in their ear of, you know, oh, your mom just needs to come back to Texas. This isn't going to work out, you know? So they really kind of let that resonate a lot. So when we went back for Christmas, I extended their holiday stay because I knew they were missing family. At the time I had that relationship with my ex-family and in-laws and all the, you know, extended family that I was like, they can stay. Virtual learning is happening. They can continue that. And get some more family time and then they can come 
at the end of January. And then my ex-husband decided to not return them and to file and fight me for custody. So we are in the middle of that right now. So that has been the biggest battle. There is so much shame from just mom shame, mom guilt. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, why are they at this moment? Seems like they're choosing him over me to where he's never been in the picture till now, you know? And a lot of the reason I had to move and kind of change my entire life because like, okay, no child support. I need to have a job that I can, you know, support us solely, you know, and not have to worry about it. Like if he does, great. But if he doesn't, I know we'll be fine too. And that wasn't happening where I was living. What are some of the like mindset shifts that you've made that have helped you to make it through or just to... Being grateful is, I think, the biggest one. Starting morning meditation and having the mindset of no matter what happens, whether it's good, whether it's bad, we will get through it. And I don't have to have the answers. That I really is letting go of wanting to know all the answers, wanting to have the plan and being able to let things go as we go with this and just kind of let the journey unfold. And for me, that's incredibly hard but it has also been incredibly freeing and a weight lifted off because I'm not trying to control everything. Yeah, well, that's beautiful. Sharon, are you ready to tell us a little bit about your story? Thank you so much, Heather, for that. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm totally here. Thank you, Heather, for sharing all that. You know, beautiful. Gratitude. Totally the key being happy where you're at and everything else will happen. <laughs> will you tell us a little bit about where you were born, what early childhood was like? Okay, so I was born, my parents lived in Gregory, Portland. My dad was pastor of a church, Baptist church there. And I was born in the doctor's office in Sinton by Dr. Ewing, who became our family doctor forever. You know, like even as adults, early childhood. Okay, so I mean, my mother was a Capricorn, tiny, four foot, three inches tall, size four and a half shoe, <laughs> tiny petite, dressed impeccably. Had her, you know, those were the days in the fifties when they had the perfect three inch heel pump made of linen and the women would have them dyed to match their outfits. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, she was that mom, wore gloves all the time. Funniest story about her, my dad got her a sewing machine for Mother's Day or something and she made a little shift dress. (laughs) And when she went to try it on, the armholes were sewed together and she never sewed on the machine again. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, okay, I quit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's a fun, she was an incredible mother. And then my parents got divorced when I was, I guess, almost 12. I guess looking back historically, it was a huge thing. You know, like nobody got divorced in those days, really, where it was silent. And you had to be separated for 18 months before you could even file for divorce. Mm. You know, but at the same time, as children, it never involved us. 
you know, like, all of a sudden one day we have to make a decision to live with my dad or my mom. My brother, in those days, the boys automatically went with the dad. He was almost six, I guess, five and a half, six. And so to not be separated, we all went with my dad. What was that like for you? Was that really hard, like having being put in that position to choose? I will say it was probably perplexing, but it wasn't like how it is now. Like this, I mean, after me going through a divorce after 32 years of marriage, it was a huge, dramatic, life-changing, you know, hell and back experience, you know. But as my childhood, I mean, it was just something that was done and we never really thought about it, you know. And then my mother ended up marrying her high school sweetheart and I was course the gypsy one that said oh my god that's so romantic you know but then she ended up having a nervous breakdown because she was a faithful mother and in those days they didn't have the medical knowledge to know what was happening with her and her hormones which was all thyroid related and they just filled her full of morphine and it killed her brain and then she died when she was like 42 a vegetable Oh, wow. And, and I was the only one that went and visited her, and I was pretty much outcast from my family for that. Those issues with my sister are still yet to be healed, you know. I'm sure she's come along with it and realized things, but we have yet to ever talk about it. Did your dad restrict yeah. communication or visitation with your mom? Oh, no. Oh, no. My dad... He is the epitome of unconditional love and not just in what he taught as a teacher, um, minister, pastor, shepherd, whatever you want to call it, and the things that he built in his life, but he lived that. And then later through my marriage, that was the issue with me and my ex-husband because it was just the discipline factor was personal, degrading, you know, instead of, yeah, maybe a behavior needs to change, but that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Right, and right. And have one of your sons ask you in, in most desperate state, Mom, am I just a bad person? But back to my early childhood, okay, and kind of where I've come from. I had that kind of example, and the whole thing with them getting divorced, it just, it was never a negative thing with me, ever. So you were 12? You know? Yeah, I was like 12. So, but w- so was there a, a shift? I didn't have a mom after that. I didn't have a mom after that. Did my you notice a shift my... in yourself after that? Like, was there a change in, like, your personality, no, behavior? Like, I mean, this, yeah, no, this was the thing, is that, like, my dad always recognized my gifts. When I was four years old, I came home from church one day and played I Have Decided to Follow Jesus on the piano because I heard it at church. That's when my music stuff started happening. You know, at seven, I got baptized, you know, like in the Baptist church where they do the little thing and all that. You know, I knew then that my life was dedicated to the service of mankind. Yeah. I knew then, I didn't know what it meant, but it was a definite experience for me. And my dad did everything in my life to encourage that. You know, kudos to him, and I'm thankful that he's 
in all of our lives <laughs> spiritually to that point of, I mean, really, you know, like in every day of your path, every day that you go out and you're confronted with people in the grocery line, in the gas line, in a seminar, whatever, that you have an impact on that person to know that they're unconditionally loved is a huge thing, you know, and I had that experience and it's taken me a long time and gone through many different spiritual experiences to get to where I am now, where I can say without a shadow of a doubt that that is completely the only thing that's important. <laughs> oh, definitely. And everything else will come, you know. And so what was high school like? Were you a good student? I was a straight-A student. My dad is a genius, IQ, valedictorian through his colleges. It's just in the genes, you know, we come from some strain. I always, I loved learning, you know. I mean, I loved school. I graduated from high school when I was 16, went on to college. They had a, like, it was the first year they had this program where you could go like four semesters instead of two. So I graduated early. I had my own apartment, job, going to college when I was 16, you know? Wow. So I was kind of propelled early. I mean, I'm an Aquarian, you know, always ahead of their time. But, and it was never a negative thing, you know, like it's not like I had to move out of my house. I did something horrible. You know, it was all very cool, natural experience. And high school was good. I was, you know, I was a cheerleader in junior high, you know. I totally looked totally different than what I am inside. <laughs> People think I'm like this really preppy, and I'm just so not, you know. But I had a happy high school experience, like happy. Okay. And so then what were your relationships like after that? After that, let's see. Well, I had a really great high school boyfriend, a great junior high boyfriend. You know, it's like, oh my God, so sweet. And clean, you know, clean, fresh, like we did nothing but kiss, you know, it's like. <laughs> Innocent love. Oh my. Yes, but just so meaningful, you know. And then let's see, after college, yeah, there was the trombone player. <laughs> And then I ended up actually getting married when I was 19, and I came back from my honeymoon and said, went to my dad's office at the church and said, I've done the wrong thing, I'm in the wrong place, I don't know what it is, but I'm just like, this, I can't do this. What happened so, with that marriage? Well, he was like, I guess, six, seven years older than me, really nice guy. It was just so fluky. It was just the flukiest thing, and... Diamond engagement ring, you know, probably any girl would be so happy. But we went on our honeymoon and just his talking about, like, I was supposed to be like this just social hostess to all this stuff. And I just couldn't be that. So was he abusive? No, no, he did actually on the day that I told him that, you know, I wanted the marriage annulled or divorce, whatever. He did. He tried to hold on to me and he crushed my ribs, you know. And, oh. But it wasn't like a malicious thing. It was just heartbreak. And it was a hard thing to face. But I just knew I was not in the right place in my life. And for whatever reason, I had the strength to say it and be honest about it. And I, at that time, I went and stayed with and lived with my mother. Kind of the last day she was at home. Then came back to Corpus. 
So you went and stayed with your mom. Was her mental health already like really declining at that point? Yeah, like and five years later, then like when me and Randy had gotten together, we've been dating for a long time, and then we joined the family. And months before we left, we just prayed that the Lord would take her, you know, out of her misery. She was just forty-four pounds, stick of bones, curled up in a bed, and then she died three days later. So I was very thankful, you know. So there's, you know, good things. Yeah, so Randy, so like, okay, so I had lived with my mom, came back to Corpus. My dad was still here in the Corpus area, and I lived with him and got a job being a cocktail waitress. And I went out one night, and that's when I met Randy. I asked for a glass of water, you know, I wasn't drinking. And then we kind of met, and then a few months later, we got a job at the same place. And that's when we started dating, you know, it's like we dated for like four and a half years before we actually got married. We had broken up. We were in Corpus then we went to Austin. He came back to Corpus. I stayed in Austin. Then he called me one day and said, hey, I think we need to get married in three days. And I'm like, okay. What was the rationale behind that? I, I did acid and had a big party with all my friends and gave away everything in my apartment and drove what I kept in a U-Haul down Sunday night, got there Monday morning. We got the blood test and the license. Me and my girlfriend stayed up all night. And I sewed this cute little chiffon skirt and bought this little top. And we were supposed to get married at 6 o'clock the next morning, but we didn't get there till 8. Why did he want to, like, rush to get married so quickly? Well, we didn't really rush to get married. We've known each other for almost five years. But he was just all of a sudden like, we need to get married in three days? Yeah, yeah. Well, he was on a spiritual journey as well. You know, we're both on a spiritual journey. And to this day, he's still on his spiritual journey. We Our paths have separated, but... God loves him and his journey as much as he loves me. And where if you're not in the same place in your journey, then the loving thing to do is let the other person go to their journey. I don't know. Oh, God. So bad with Bible verses now. There's one about, you know, laying down your life for the other. I mean, I loved him. I've known him since he was 14. You know, I know all the miracles and wonderful, incredible things he's done in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And a lot of good that he's done, but our journeys are separate now, you know? So wh- how did you guys meet the family and what made you or what led you to uh, joining? What okay. was it? Oh, you're going to love this story. <laughs> okay. So he does this in Austin. We get married. Okay. And he's going to this real super, super duper Pentecostal church. Okay, and they think he's like the next prophet, you know, like, and so I got a job working, we lived right on Weber, Doddridge, and Ocean Drive, and there's this house, a big, huge house in the back, right behind Ocean Drive, and the guy inherited it from his grandparents, and he rents the rooms out to hippies, you know, so we had this studio apartment there, and I would ride my bicycle to Turner's I got a job at Turner's Nursery, the garden place. Ride my bike there and ride home. And so I worked while he stayed home and prayed in the shower. And and then he met the family. 
And so I came home from work one day and he told me, you know, and he gave me the little Mo Quote book that they had at that time. I still have it, actually. And I read Diamonds of Dust. You know, and it so resonated with me on a spiritual note. That's exactly what I was taught by my dad, that we're just like a little speck of light and whatever influence and circle we have, we're reflecting that light to others, you know? Right. Oh, yeah. No, I love that one, too. I believe that. I just, it, it was just, I so connected. I just said, I, whatever this is, whoever wrote this, I want to find out what this is. And then the next thing was, for God's sake, follow God, where he talks about, you know, each person is individually connected to God and source energy. It's not uh, something coming from a pope or a preacher or anybody else. It's you connected with that energy. So for you guys, it was like, this is our chance to be of service and to serve God. Oh, yeah. And go the next spiritual plane. You know, like I was a Southern Baptist preacher's daughter. You know, I was raised in the church. My dad was a word preacher. He was like, he was just that quiet strength and faith in God. And he's like a super genius kind of guy, you know, like he was like in engineering and architecting and all that kind of stuff. Was going to do something totally different when he got a call to do the other thing, to do the spiritual thing. And I believe, I actually believe in his experience as God's preacher, he came to know how limited religion makes things for people. Like you have to go through all these steps and the whole guilt and shame thing, like I grew up with no guilt, no shame. And that's why it was such a huge thing with Randy, because it was all about guilt and shame, because that must have been what he experienced as a child. I never experienced that. And what do you think it was? What do you think it was that kept you in the marriage with him if those were his, like, tactics? Because it really didn't come out until we left the family and came back and were on our own. I see. And it was just us. He was not, like, our parents lived 10, 20 minutes away, and we visited maybe Christmas and Thanksgiving. Mm. You know, like, and we were starting over. I mean, and honestly, it took us five years to get over the guilt of leaving the family and that we had forsaken our calling. We were just graveling for any kind of, you know, even... God blessed us so much. You know, he gave us that beautiful house. The lady just gave us the keys. We had no money and took care of us for 20 years. You know, when we finally ended up buying the house from her, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. it was an incredible miracle. People provided for us. Jack and Lee at the Chinese restaurant that we've all gone to eat all these years. We would take them fish that the guys would catch and they would give us food. Oh, wow. So, you know, like, so you guys went to Asia, right? Where Livy was born? Personally go through like leaving that life. And what are we going to do now? And the feelings of shame and guilt were like huge, you know, it took a long time to get over that, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, but very good lessons learned that in reality, there is no shame and guilt. There is absolutely we do not need to live in that period, you know? For God sure, it's so destructive. Cheerleader, you know, the spirit world and everything and everyone that's passed on before us are cheering us on. 
to get it quicker than they did, you know? But I believe my dad had a realization of the spiritual world and how it really worked and blessed to be able to confirm that now at 64, you know? Right. After, you know, dragging my kids through hell for 10 years. So you guys went to Asia, then uh, you had Olivia in Indonesia? Yes. It was such an incredible experience. This lady from Scandinavia did this clinic there for midwives, you know, and births. And when we were there, my wire broke and no contraction. This girl, this beautiful Indonesian girl, walks in the room and comes to my bed and holds my arm and asks me how I'm doing. And I'm just like, what is your name? And she said, Olivia. And we knew right then. We'd been looking through books and books of names. And we looked at each other and we knew that Olivia was going to be born. How interesting. Okay, just so for our audience. So Sharon's yeah. oldest daughter's name is Olivia Eden, which is also yeah, my and name. Well. And I was born in I'm Ecuador. A little, a little twin. <laughs> and Olivia was born in Indonesia. My younger yeah. sister shares the uh, the same dad. So Randy is the dad of my younger sister as well as Olivia. So she has two older yeah. sisters named Olivia Eden who are born on opposite sides of the world, which is really crazy. So which is really crazy, but how but it shows you how incredible, how incredible divine timing is that we've known each other. I mean, like since you were a cute chubby baby, you know? Oh and, yeah. And now, at this present time, you are doing this incredible work, you know? Thank and you. There are no accidents. <laughs> I totally believe that. So can you tell uh, the audience what it was like to be in an open, well, you know, nowadays they call it open relationships, but in the family, there was obviously, you know, polyamory, sexual freedom. Heather has a different dad. And then, you know, Emily is Randy's daughter. So yeah. what was that like yeah. having that open relationship? What were wow. the struggles and the pros, lot, pros and cons? It's a lot of different aspects, you know? Like when we joined the family, like the FFing thing, the flirty fishing was kind of going out. And because we had just joined, we were like, you know, considered babes, you know? And they don't introduce any of that stuff to somebody that's not spiritually thinking that, I don't know, I always go back, if you ever want a good explanation of their true intent of what that meant, to watch the movie The Big Chill. Okay. It's about a group of people, and it has all, like, all-star cast, in, and they have the best music soundtrack ever for a movie, but it's about this group of people that all went to college together, and they come back for a friend's funeral. And what ensues from that. And it's worth watching every friggin' minute, you know? And that would give you a good explanation of what the law of love and giving your life for another is all about. With that being said, then for me personally, we really weren't introduced to any of that. I mean, I think I flipped through the flurry fishing book that was volume five, I think. It just wasn't really what we were about. We were just like spiritually intaking how we can do the best service and healing for others and connecting with God. Yeah, but you know, God. so many people yeah, experience and, and infidelity. The appeal, the appeal was that it was not, it wasn't Baptist, Methodist, Buddhist, and you know, it wasn't any from any religion. 
You know, this is a guy that followed his calling. Nobody's perfect. And your followers aren't perfect either and take things on their own vein, you know, or to their own advantage. It, it doesn't matter what religion, political, anything, whatever box you want to put yourself in, you have all those levels of people in every box, you know? So open so, relationships uh, are very so in vogue right now. So they're, especially in Austin, like there's a right. lot of people who are in open and you know, yeah. and whatever that means to and, them. You know, listen, I'm a 70s girl. You have to remember, you know, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a 70s girl. So I know exactly what open is. And, and in the end, even though many encounters can be meaningful, I think everyone in their heart, just like there's a thing in your spirit that directs you towards the connection with God, directs you towards human contact but and something. What were some of the challenges? But it doesn't matter. I mean, they're just like now in our world, how can you possibly judge what people are doing and what they're doing to have some kind of kindness or happiness or love or connection in their life and however long it lasts is really not. I don't think the thing is not for judgment. The thing, the reason why we want yeah. to talk about it is for more of an understanding and yeah. how, for instance, it shaped your kids experience, you know, witnessing that event, yeah. you know, and like, for instance, the relationship that you and my mom had was something that I'll never forget because you just had so much love for my mother, which for most people would, they would think, you know, that that would not she be was, the case considering. I mean, I mean, I mean, I just have to say, you know, which I think is she really saved, beautiful. She saved my life. She gave me hope after coming back from Japan and we went through Several of those leadership chop-chop jobs, because we were always kind of at the top echelon of everything that was happening. Grandpa was supporting us for years. When we left the family, six weeks later, they were begging us to come back. What made you guys decide to leave? Well, after all the different things that we had experienced, we were like pioneers, you know, like. If they wanted to start something new and a new thing, they sent me and Randy. And we got the house. We supplied the house. We got the contacts for the food. You know, like set the work up for other people to come and take over. That's what we were good at. You know, we were just a good team. You know, we really didn't have a romantic relationship, but we were a good team. We had the same spiritual goals, I guess. And they recognized that. And we were shiners for years, you know, like actual numbers. And I don't know. You don't know why you guys left? Because they had this meeting. Okay, so we're in Washington, D.C., had set up this whole work. That was when the first EAs, you know, 18 to 24, 26, okay, coming from all over the world. We taught them how to get driver's license, how to drive, how to make bank accounts. Just because we joined the family doesn't mean your kids are going to join the family, you know? Mm -hmm. And they have to know how to do things outside of what we did. And we were those people. And then, so they called us into this meeting one day, and they said that we didn't want to pass over leadership to the EAs when we weren't leaders at that time anyway. 
that's all we were doing. We devoted like five years to it. That the EAs become the leaders. And so we just like, I don't know what they're thinking. And we just decided it was time to go. And they were pulling all these kids in. I remember this one kid, he got in a cell phone and racked up like $800 worth of sex calls. You know, just the treatment. So many weird things were happening at that time. I mean, like we physically, with signs, walking in front of the embassy, protesting, kinds of stuff. So there was a divergence of purpose that took place, basically. Yeah, and so after that, we just felt like, you know, okay, like we're done. They're not getting it, you know, like we're just not those people. Well, I know I experienced a a crisis. We our car with them. You know, we got a rent-a-car, had three kids, pregnant. Drove it back to Corpus, met the lady. She gave us the keys to the house. I mean, just like, you know, many good things happened after that. But it was a lot of, it was a spiritual rebirth. Well, it was a major identity crisis because you guys had these identities as leaders in the family. And I experienced the same and a lot of people who left the family experienced that. We had given our best and just couldn't even fathom how they were getting that idea. So, so far beyond that, you know, and I think everybody experiences that at different times in their life when you have that realization like, holy cow. Yeah. I was just wondering if Heather had any questions for you. Yeah, the dynamic of kind of more what went on in the leadership and with the running and um, I guess relationships that you had with the other adult family members because there was so much lost on the kid's side of being in the family and kind of what that looked like from your, like from being a mom's side, like what was that like for you for, for having kids, like like, having Liv, having me and Forrest all in the family and then doing all the traveling and stuff and then all the different homes and us being separated. Cause I don't remember, I don't remember Liv until like later in Japan when we were leaving. Yeah. You were three, four, five. Five was white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, I had never, like, as a young girl, because I was a pianist, I mean, I played piano and played tennis. I didn't babysit. My first diaper I ever changed was Olivia's. You know? Like, mm-hmm. I didn't know, I was voted most unlikely to get married and have children. It just never dreamed it would be in my cards, you know? But thank God I was in the family when I had all of you guys with the most loving people surrounded, you know, Incredible spiritual women, 
I mean, like, these women were like, if you read some of the Bible stories in the Old Testament of things that some of the women did and were a testament to, these were those women, you know? Like, I didn't have any ill experiences with the women in the family, you know? It was such an incredible thing. And I'm so thankful, so thankful to have that experience. I mean, it's a lot what the world right now is actually realizing are things that the family have been teaching since the 60s, you know? And now it's all trendy and cool, but, you know, there are people that have been living it for a long time, you know, and have the fruits of it, you know? And then not having that support after we came back and left the family was very difficult. Yeah, just as we were just in such a different place, we second guessed every decision for years, you know, to get started and things happening the way they did with meeting Matt and Deborah at the piano gallery. And dad gets a job, and the first piano he sells is $96,000, and he gets a commission off that. I mean, you know, God was still being very evident in our lives, even though it wasn't an easy go. So I just want to talk a little bit about this. So like, I am the type of person who will never throw the baby out with the bathwater. And just because there were some adverse or somewhat negative experiences that happened in a situation, still able to look at the positive things from that. But it's very important that we look at both of them clearly, because when you're not, when you're only focusing on the good and you didn't, you haven't really talked about the things that do affect, then the the tendency for somebody to internalize all of their dysfunction and place that weight upon themselves is is very high. So like, I know that the importance of really learning, like really taking the time, which I mean, I'm 64, you know, I just told Vincent the other day, honey, you know, at least you have a head start. Yeah, so I know there was that difficult shift. important unconditional love for yourself is, and learning that, I mean, it was huge for me. I mean, I still battle with it, you know, I still battle with it, you know, and I had, just like you said, you know, recognition of your patterns, you know, you mentioned that earlier. So it's so important to really know yourself, you know, and makes a huge difference. But like, okay, so in that whole thing with the family and, I mean, we only actually, me and Randy only shared, let's see, Like five times. So what she means by sharing is um, hooking up with other adults. Yeah. Like people who were like long time without their mates or didn't have a mate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Didn't have someone to have that time with. Like my mom. You know, but then there's the other extreme. So this is a big one. Okay. So then after 
Indonesia, and we were under house arrest for like six weeks under persecution, like heavy duty, heavy duty stuff, like passports taken away. Had no idea. And friends there in Indonesia supplied us with a way to get out. Actually, the high, highest military guys there drove all our literature out to an island and burned it so we wouldn't have it in our possession. Mm-hmm. And we had these friends. This woman was a jeweler, and she made this two-ounce solid gold necklace for me to wear out of the country. Oh, wow. So that we could turn it into cash when we landed. We're talking James Bond stuff. (laughs) When we were in China, the guy that brought us literature, he literally changed his passport, disguise, everything. It was like James Bond stuff, you know. Was that happening when you were pregnant with Heather? Okay, so this is right before Heather. So Livia is about eight months old. And then we went to Hong Kong. We landed in Hong Kong. And actually one of the major places where everybody was, but we didn't know that at that time. And so we were invited into this home. And so actually during that time, five months, I was an ESer, you know, an escort girl. A flirty fisher? No, like a highly paid escort. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, there's a difference. Sorry, Gus. Okay, so you were getting paid to go out with these rich men. This isn't just like, you know, small-time stuff. This is like heads of companies, organizations, influential people. What was that experience like for you? Very interesting, you know, like, I mean... I'm just like, I'm that person. I'm all in, you know, if it resonates with me and it makes happen what needs to happen, I'm all in. So, I mean, you know, I slept around when I was younger and it, you know, if you're going to just do it for yourself, you might as well do it to help other good things happen, you know? So that's kind of the way I looked at it. And Um, you were supporting the home by doing that, right? So that you were, like, the primary source of, like, income? Yeah. And that's how you met Heather's dad? (laughs) Yep, I was. And that's how Heather came to us. Yeah. She's a beautiful product of that. Beautiful jewel. It's the jewel of the whole experience. And I don't regret any of it, you know? So we talked a little bit about before you got on about how Heather and her dad, Randy, had a very different dynamic in their relationship compared to his yeah. relationship with the other kids. What was that yeah. like for you seeing that? Oh, that's a really big one. Okay, so I guess that would take me to an all-encompassing love for Randy and who he is. 
Okay. Okay. And that he doesn't, I don't think he has really ever experienced true spiritual love and forgiveness. And he thinks that he has to make his life good enough for others and for what others see. And it's a bondage that is, I could not get through. He had an inherent unworthiness of love. At one time of our life, I think, you know, we had that spiritual connection, but then after leaving the family, I, I think it was a lot on his plate, a lot of responsibility, he loved the children. But I, he just constantly himself, you know, so I think it's, it's a big, I think that's the biggest thing, you know. And I think he also, he pulled me, you know, like he pulled, we were married. We'd only been married like two weeks when he met the family, okay? Okay. So we'd been married two weeks when he met the family. And then he told me about everything. And then we left to be with family. Yeah. So I think a lot of the healing that comes in family dynamics that I've seen. And I, you know, I think, and this is nothing to you as a parent at all, because, you know, like, you guys did the best that you could with the resources that you had and you had yeah. such a strong and intention. We were in our journey. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing with having unconditional love for other people. You have to see the parts of your journey when you failed, when you were below what you really feel in your heart of who you are. And everybody fails at that. It can be from like getting fussy at a Somebody working in a water burger that's taking too long. Somebody pulling out in front of you. It's all the same thing. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, right. You were modeled unconditional love, but Randy. With it, you know? So Randy didn't have that same modeling of unconditional love. And I think the love that he exactly. imposed on the kids exactly. was very conditional, which was really challenging and difficult. So exactly. what I'm trying to say For me, is every moment, every, every day, and it's like Heather described, you know, like walking. Up. I'm talking about, you know, we always we were we have been. Extremely fortunate to have lived in very nice places all of our lives. God has been good to us. Yes. Um, Yes, that's true. But there are some things that have to be looked at and have to be acknowledged in order for healing to happen. So I'll just give you an example from my story. So, you know, we had a beautiful, wonderful mother that you guys know, and she saved so many people. And I am, she was my saving grace because she showed me what unconditional love was also. And so like, you know, I'm so happy that I have that support. that's how we connected, you know. But because of some of the stuff that happened in the family and because of like the intense ideological possession that she had that the family, you know, sort of engendered. There were situations like when I was separated from Tay when Tay was 15 because the home didn't want to accept her 
And in order for so my mom to rejoin. Right. So, yeah, yeah. It so. Was so horrible. I mean, we got like demoted, I guess you would say. Okay. And they sent us to this training home in Mexico. I did dishes for like forever. And all these kids, the kids were literally moving rocks. I was like freaking out, you know. And then Isaac and that other guy, what's the other guy, Juan, you know, all those guys came. And I, and I, you know, I just like, this is just not the right thing to be doing, you know. Are you kidding me, you know? Yeah, so that's the point. It's not that my mom was a bad mom because she was wonderful. But there were things that needed to be acknowledged. And honestly, like what I would have loved, you know, is before she passed away, if we could have talked about some of those things, you know, some of the things that led to a lot of dysfunction in my life, a lot of anger. And I know like with your kids, like they're all so freaking amazing and wonderful, but they've, a lot of them have struggled heavily with substance abuse and dysfunction. It's a miracle. We're all still here. Are you kidding me? It's like a miracle we're all still here and have made it this far. Definitely. You know? Yeah. But I believe, I mean, absolutely, that there's nothing more powerful than somebody on their knees. And like Heather described like when you finally let go of control, that you have no control over this, you know? And that whoever is in control is bringing the best results in the best way along everybody's journey. You have to ultimately believe that. And, and that's acknowledging the good in ourselves and the bad. Yeah, acknowledging yeah. both is important, taking responsibility it, 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 for situations. And that, you know, there's things you weren't okay with. And, you know, I mean, I've been known my whole life. My whole life. I mean, seriously. For being Pollyanna, you know? Yeah. And. Yeah. But that's acknowledging that when things happen, and Heather's been such an incredible example of this in these recent days of the custody thing, of believing that the best outcome is happening for whatever reason, even if it's a healing for Kyle and Heather, you know, and Chloe and Anna Lynn, that there's a healing time for them where everybody's going to be better for it. I mean, that takes a lot of faith in divine timing and allowing, you know, going downstream in your boat and allowing things to happen, not exactly what you want, of going, paddling upstream, fighting every freaking thing. Totally. So, Heather... I know. So there's acknowledgement that needs to happen, right? And healing and all of this stuff. But what is something that you think would aid in the healing of your whole family? You know, the the relationships that your brothers and sisters have with each other and the relationship with the parents. Like, what do you think is something that would help in that 
direction? I think the acknowledgement of, of like she said, like when they moved back, like it was kind of starting from scratch for them from what they didn't know. And they were just figuring it out. But because so much was lost, it kind of dropped, especially with the kids. It was never acknowledged. Not connections with people to having no connections with people. Right. Was a huge thing. And then I know a lot of it was, you know, a lot of the stuff with dad and the way he was and this pretty much a dictator in the house. It was like we were all under that, including my mom. Yeah. So there was a lot of that. You know, we'll we'll bring up the sound of music where He blows the whistle on each child. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think we want to talk about this because, like, Heather just yeah. moved to California starting from scratch. There's so many things that don't, yeah. she, like, I'm sure your kids don't want to be repeated for their kids. But only yeah. by talking about them and being like, okay, these are the things that affected me. And I think for the parents, it's hard because you, there is this guilt that comes with it. Like, oh, no, did I fuck them up or make a mistake? But if you can go beyond uh, I, that to listen I, to what I, the kids are saying, like, these are the things that affected me, acknowledging that it's yeah. so powerful and it takes a lowering of ego and pride and it just takes some yeah. acceptance and surrender. Like, OK, yes, I, I can so acknowledge true, that. Olivia. You know, like, what? Before I came out here and pretty much out in the country, so peaceful and quiet, you know. And that's been part of letting go of guilt and shame and the horrors, you know, of how you, I mean, I'm just going to say it fucked everybody up, you know in one way or another, you know? So that, shame is different I mean, from I guilt. I never really, you know, I, I was never really taught that, you know? I mean, I mean, I just remember as a child, just like, seriously, like the little girl in the white dress and the blue ribbons in her hair, skipping through the field. That was my childhood. I wanted that for my kids, and it was, so different from that, you know, it took a crushing of my spirit and my soul and my body physically actually going through sicknesses, you know, and coming to a level of healing, inner healing to get it all out, you know, it's a huge thing. Well, look, there's always no, time to heal and move I believe, forward. I believe that for everyone, everyone. It may not be, everyone has different things that they go through that experience in their life to get them to that place where they can let go. What is the relationship that you would like to have with your kids going forward? Like, what do you see? Like, you just got to go forward. Yeah, because if we can create a vision, if we can, you know, imagine yeah. the thing that we would like to have, it makes it so yeah. much easier. What is the relationship so that you would like to have with the kids going forward? Like, what is, like, the dynamic that you would like to see and the dynamic for the kids to have together? Yes. Yeah. 
very funny. I'll tell you a story. Okay, so for years, the kids know this. My grandson, a couple of years ago after I moved in here, and they first came to visit, he said, you know, Glammy, it doesn't matter where you live. It always looks the same. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. And then at my last, you know, when all my money was gone, I spent everything on trying to heal things in a physical way instead of a spiritual way. And ended up here, and I, I gave the last, I had this collection of Monet pictures, okay? And I just gave them to these ladies at the end of the garage sale. And then my friend that I've known for, they didn't keep them. So she brought the pictures back to me. So there's this one picture, okay? And it's like, all these people on a patio, you know, having lunch, tea, socializing, you know, and love and care and just the kindest thing ever. And that is my picture of my life for my kids. And I can already say that it is the thing I am most grateful for as a mother that it wouldn't matter if I'm here or not here. My kids would care for each other and are there for each other. You know? That is something I have to say, that and there is that so much loyalty between them, which is so beautiful. You know, their, yeah, and their enlightenment to really believing spiritual things and how real it is. It's more real than the physical. People just don't get it. The spiritual and the energy and the things that can happen through it are more real than us physically doing the work to try to make things happen. And anytime you're trying to make things happen, you need to like go the other direction. <laughs> Those are the two things that are very important to me. Yeah, definitely. And that I'd be an example of that from now until I'm not here anymore. And I just think something that would also be helpful, like, I guess, you know, because I know that I had a lot of questions for my mom that I would have loved to have talked to her about, but a lot of times she would, she would just shut down and she wouldn't talk about it because it was too painful. And I think uh, like. Listen, I would totally, I would totally be up for that because I never had that with my mother. I mean, I didn't have a mother after I was 12. I never had that relationship. I didn't have that relationship with my grandmother. I mean, I wasn't unhappy or anything or felt like abused or anything like that. But I would love to have that opportunity. And I would love to have those opportunities with my kids to them ask me anything they want to ask. Yeah, and it's asking and then it's also yeah. explaining yeah. their maybe their their experience from yeah. their side exactly. because perception is reality I'm so and thankful. yeah. So if you just sit there and just kind of like listen to and acknowledge and yeah. validate yeah. and I think there's a lot yeah. of healing Validation that can come from that. Huge. 
that was a huge issue with Randy is not validating how people feel. Right. Know, because he yeah. didn't validate how he felt. Right. He could not find a way to validate his own feelings. Totally. So he totally. couldn't he couldn't do that to anybody else, you know? Oh he and, yeah, he didn't have that growing up. So Super sad. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a world of pain, you know, when you don't, when you have this inherent unworthiness of love and you're never good enough and you have to be perfect and everyone has to see you as perfect. patriarchal society that a lot of those parents lived in is just so off in so many ways. Okay. So thank you so much for coming on we love you so much and i know heather oh, and livia is here too listening uh oh. we're interested to hear these portions of your story we want to end all of our podcasts by just going over really quick we'll do the rapid fire of like one win and one challenge that you're facing this week okay. like maybe a challenge that you found a silver lining in or something yeah. that you're working through and something positive some win that you've had this week this is so huge for me to be public (laughs) i I just can't tell you (laughs) i know it takes a it takes a lot of courage and i'm so thankful i'm just so thankful honey that it's with you oh i love you so thank you for that yeah my pleasure thank you it's there's so much healing that comes from talking about things and being open and admitting you know mistakes and stuff yeah i never see really had that with my kids well it's never too late the opportunity is getting better yes yes (laughs) yes just gotta schedule it in pencil it in yeah what about you Heather? My big win for this week was seeing my kids getting to spend the weekend with yeah. them and have fun and oh just my God. cuddles. They're and mature best. cuddles. They're they so are. mature. They've grown so, they so much. <laughs> it's been a good thing. Oh, my God. It's just the most beautiful thing ever. And then a challenge, uh, the biggest challenge was yesterday walking into my ex-husband's house and seeing pictures of us still on the wall <laughs> as I'm drawing them. Oh, my them God. Off. Oh, man. <laughs> God. Triggered me Was that creepy? Oh, it was so, so, I wanted to crawl out of my skin. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> he has a little Heather shrine. <laughs> oh, my God. And they've been divorced for five years. They've been divorced for five years. everything. <laughs> and I have not been sending mixed signals in any sort of way. So I'm just like, what? <laughs> oh, God. He has a master plan going on. <laughs> So, and my highlight, so today's Heather's birthday. So we're so freaking honored and blessed to have been able to have a really special dinner with her last night. So she's visiting from San Diego with her and Livy. And we got to talk until like four in the morning, which is awesome. One challenge is, it's an ego thing. So I'm like growing my hair out and like half of my hair is like white gray and I'm just like oh my god I'm 32 this is just <laughs> it's a challenge such a challenge for me to accept uh, so pure vulnerability there but you know it we have that, that kind of pretty platinum <laughs> lavender gray until it all grows out so you want it then make it how you want it 
That's a great idea. <laughs> Thank you. Marie did that. She did hers like this lavender platinum. It was beautiful. Yeah, that would be. It's just that my hair is so dark, so I would have to like bleach yeah, it, right. and we'll see. I'll um, figure it out. <laughs> yeah, Let it keeps it, keeps me humble. It's good. What's your yeah. mind? Getting to spend her birthday. Yeah. My challenge this week. I'll start with my challenge. My challenge this week was explaining to my family what break the cycle was. <laughs> what it all means to me. And I didn't exactly get a lot of the reaction that I wanted. And um, yeah, it it was... uh, Can you tell the audience a little bit about Break the Cycle? Yeah, it's pretty much, you know, holding that space for yourself and for your family members to go over some of the traumas that you've been holding on to for your life based on the events of your life. And healing from them and choosing to break the cycle so that you don't repeat it with your children. And I think that break the cycle for me applies to many different things. It's mainly that, but it also applies to, as a health coach, it applies to breaking patterns that keep you in that unhealthy lifestyle that add, lead to obesity and just body shaming and not being happy in wherever you're at. So having to explain that, and, and right now I'm still starting, so I'm, I'm all over the spectrum as far as like what I want to do, and like I haven't found my niche yet. So it's so was it triggering know. for them, like telling them? Is that why they didn't take it super well? Was it? No, they took it. They took it well. Some of them took it well. The, the other part of it is that you know they don't understand it, and they're not at a place yet where they can. I'm the youngest of them and they are all like very business mindset and they want everything to have a plan and like they want me to like already kind of know what the outcome is. I'm like, well, I'm learning as I go. I'm I'm just kind of taking it for what it is. But my high is that I have a great mentor and that I'm, you know, I'm finding opportunities to grow and to keep learning and, and just being able to listen to other people's stories and just kind of you know, learning from Olivia because it's, man, it's, it's just, you have such a gift whenever it comes to interviewing people and asking them and getting them to open up. And I, I want to have that eventually. And so oh, that's, thank you. <laughs> I mean, thank you ladies. I, I think yes, it's really I learned important. From all of you. And I also wanted to share earlier when uh, Heather was going over her experience of the activation project that I think it, you know, you mentioned going to therapists and talking and doing the conversation and how that doesn't work for a lot of people. And I think that a big part of why the activation project works for a lot of people that know Olivia is that, you know, we see how far she's come and we know that there's no judgment behind this journey whatsoever. And you've been so clear and so vulnerable. And you you just put everything out there for what it is. And where, you know, as a therapist, you can't really do that. Like you, it's hard to run into a therapist that you can actually build a personal relationship with. And you're so personal. You have no shyness when it comes to sharing your personal experiences. And I think that makes a huge difference for everyone. Yeah. That was a big part is like letting go of the shame around all of the stuff that I had been through and gone through and done and, and stuff like that. So, but yeah, that's a big part of the activation project is that we take you more as like a friend 
And it's not that like there's one person in darkness and the other person is like in light. It's just that one person is a little closer to the light or has a little bit more light in their unconscious mind and they're able to help bring that. And it's more of that mentality, like two people learning together and growing together as opposed to like the superior status. Mm -hmm. Because when you get there to that place where like I, I'm like the leader, mentor, whatever it is, the ego rises with it. And then you're in this, like Ram Dass calls it messianic phase where you start getting the God complex and then you can't take suggestions. And so it's like very important for me because I've seen it get out of hand like that in the family with the leaders where it's like, yes, maybe they have these gifts and they're gifted in this way where they can channel, you know, spirit and love and it changes people and it helps their lives. And that can very quickly go to your head. And if you're taking your ego with you, then there's not a lot of good that can come. You stop being the diamond of dust. You stop being able to shine the light through you because you're so filled of ego. So these things that can... Can I mention something? Yes. It's so true what you're saying about that. Because like for me, being raised like in a Christian basically home with probably a dad who was a little more supernatural than he knew. And going through the church religious system, even the family, as free as they're portrayed media-wise in the past, there still was a very religious, you know, patriarchal thing there underneath, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is the very thing that limits the unconditional love and having grace for another's path, no matter where they're at in their path. And that you can unconditionally love them just like you would somebody that's shining and bright and got everything right, blah, 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 blah. You can love that other person just the same. That was a huge thing because I did not grow up with that with my dad, even though it was a religious upbringing. And then even in the family. And for me, the family was just, I resonated with those teachings. But I didn't see them as some like, they're the only ones that are making their way to heaven or doing things right or everybody has to be that. I was never like that. Yeah, that's pretty big. I I was very persecuted for that because I didn't feel like they had one up on anybody. Right. It was my path at that time. Yeah, that's so important. And then so Kabir says, do what you do with other humans, but don't close your heart. Don't block your heart. So it's like we are going to have these like, you know, differences of opinions and stuff like that or have Uh different perspectives. Yeah. But to not close your heart to them and have this like separatist mentality, like I'm different. I'm doing it right. You're doing it wrong. Yeah. Not only can you not emanate anything good to that other person, you're cutting yourself off. Well, and that's the other thing that you have to learn is boundaries without closing your heart to love because you have to be able to to hold love but still be able to say no or say not right now you know 
So that's, that's the yeah. work, right? Is keeping our heart open because that's yeah. the only way that we yeah. can continue to grow and thrive. And, and, and that we can all, we can all learn from each other. I mean, I live in this place where like, basically I'm the teenager and I'm 64. <laughs> I mean, I live around a bunch of people that have been married for like 70 years. They've been through the last century together, you know? Wow. And they are the most incredible people. You know, they're different for me. I'm not anything like them. I'm like a weirdo. But they are just the most amazing people. You know, That's and awesome. you just have to be able to see that in every buddy. Hell yeah. It, it, it's such freedom. That is <laughs> so such true. Freedom when, you, <laughs> when you can stop nagging about somebody else. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's a goal that we should all strive for. Well, we love you so much, Sharon. We love you. Hopefully we can all get together soon. All right. And once again, you guys can, uh, you can reach us at become.activated at gmail.com. We are no longer on social media, but if you would like to come on, tell your story, if you would like to get healing from generational trauma, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. You can also find Paloma on Facebook and her page is it's at dare to break the cycle. So it's facebook.com at dare to break the cycle. Awesome. All right, guys have a great day. Bye.